All right, welcome everybody. I hope you're here because you uh, picked my talk and didn't just get stuck here because you're in the middle of a conversation, but um, but you're here now anyway, so. I'm, I'm here because I don't need any help being incorrect, politically incorrect. Okay, you're already incorrect? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's good. So, all right, let's get started here. My name is Evan Hughes. I'm uh, uh, I help put, plan this conference. I'm a member of the church here. Um, I've talked to a lot of you guys, uh, but there's some people I haven't talked to personally, but glad everybody came and m made this uh, uh, a success. Um, I'm definitely, I've definitely been blessed by the talk so far. So um, that's my name, Evan Hughes, but you might wonder what uh, qualification do I have to talk on Tolkien? Most of the other people speaking have... Uh, doctor in front of their name, or uh, after reverend, yeah, after, yeah, after them. So, um, who am I? I'm, I'm uh, if you friend me on Facebook, my uh, Facebook profile for my bio says uh, nothing and nobody. So, um, that's one self-assessment, uh, or maybe other people's assessment of me, but uh, my Instagram profile, if you look at that, I figure I probably should be a little more business savvy with my Instagram profile. Um, as I tried to get customers, uh, clients sometimes through that. So my Instagram profile says artist, maker, sculptor, woodworker, illustrator, paterfamilias, and human being. So that's a little more than nothing and nobody. Um, now in that list of my bio, um, one of them was artist, and I do consider myself an artist. I went to art school, um, but uh, I actually often dislike uh, using that to describe myself, partly because a lot of people that I know um, that call themselves artists are very pretentious and, uh, frankly, phonies. So, um, uh, I guess I say all that to say, those are my qualifications to speak on what I'm going to speak on. I don't know how many of you here are familiar with um, Tolkien's short story, Leaf by Niggle, um, but it is a you know, Glenn talked about three things that, uh, in fairy stories that Tolkien um, highlighted as the purpose of writing fantasy. The, the last one was um, for consolation. And this story for me has been uh, great consolation. Now, uh, I guess a little bit more biography in my life as an artist, um, and this is the, the case for many people that call themselves artists, it can be very frustrating. It's... Um, uh, the tendency for artists is, is to want to make your mark on the world, to do something meaningful that will be remembered, right? Um, and I think that's the case for everybody, but um, uh, maybe more so for people that are trying to put their creativity out in the world to be enjoyed and, and uh, for, you know, searching for beauty, uh, like was also spoken about here. So um, in... in Light of that, I've had some small success. You know, I've done illustration for big, big publications. Um, you know, I also do ice sculpture. I've been on, you know, uh, Today Show with my ice sculpture, doing a time lapse carving of uh, Al Roker. I could list some things that I've done, right? But they'll, they'll all the things that nobody's going to remember me. You know, I, I'm not going to be in a museum likely. I, I, my, my artwork um, is often in the a very uh, I don't know if you'd call it a utilitarian realm. Um, so all that to say, um, I relate to this story at a deep level. And uh, I don't know, how, has anybody here actually read the story? Okay, good. Maybe close to half. Um, good. So for, for the others that haven't, um, I will summarize it 
and it will spoil the story to some extent for you, but um, it's actually worth reading because my storytelling um, is obviously not as good as Tolkien's. He was a master. So um, I'll start where some other people mention this. Tolkien famously criticized Lewis for his allegorical, his use of allegory in Narnia, and um, he was very, um, not a big fan of that one-to-one -one allegory. And we can see that, and it can be confusing at times because um, his stories are, you know, we see allegorical vignettes throughout, right? I mean, we could relate to these characters. We could say, oh, this reminds me of Jesus, or this reminds me of that. Um, so what did he mean? And um, he, he tended to make a, a distinction between a more general uh, allegorical applications and uh, as being appropriate while disliking um, simple, direct allegory. Uh, things like Pilgrim's Progress, he may not have been, a, he, I don't know if he's ever said anything about that, but, um, you know, in Pilgrim's Progress, the problem he had with things like that is Christian in that book is not actually a person, right? He, he is, but only for the use of making a point, pretty much. You know, so um, Tolkien wanted a, a believable history and uh, personhood to his characters that he made, even though they were fantasy. He wanted it to be more full-orbed. He said, um, I cordially dislike allegory in all its manifestations and always have done so since I grew old and weary enough to detect its presence. I much prefer history, true or feigned, with its varied applicability to the thought and experience of readers. I think that many confuse applicability with allegory, but one resides in the freedom of the reader and the other in the proposed domination of the author. So that's the distinction there. He wanted realistic characters and histories that happened to have parallel applications to us, but that were not you know, the, the, he, that phrase, dom domination of the author. He didn't want it to be forced on you. He wanted it to come naturally from the story. So this, I'm, I'm highlighting that again to say this leads us to his, this story, Leaf by Niggle, because I would say if anything, uh, of any of the stories that Tolkien wrote, this is probably the, the most close to a direct one-to-one -one allegory. Um, he, he may not like me saying that. I don't know. But, um, you know, uh, he almost admits it, which I'll, I'll read a quote from him uh, in a little bit. So The Hobbit was um, published in 1937. And when he wrote uh, Bilbo's story in The Hobbit, he didn't yet have the Lord of the Rings um, mythology and lore sorted out. He had um, uh, a vision for maybe Middle Earth and some of the mythology started, but it wasn't connected to Bilbo's story yet or anything like that. And we know this because he actually had to revise The Hobbit and change, the, particularly I, I, one I know that he had to change the chapter on the, the, the riddles with the ring. Uh, in the original version, Gollum actually gives him the ring, I believe, and they had to uh, revise it to, to be you know, his precious and the whole uh, mythology that was attached to it. So um, he was then, you know, that story saw some success and he was then asked to write more stories about hobbits. And um, these stories wouldn't be published until 1954. And those stories ended up being the Lord of the Rings trilogy. If you do the math, that's 17 years between um, publication of The Hobbit and the publication of The Lord of the Rings. And while The Lord of the Rings eventually made Tolkien very well-known and successful, he had to actually, I think, move out of town and take his number out of the directory and all that stuff, he struggled. Um, for many years, wondering if his work would mean anything and have any significance. And uh, this fear was heightened by World War II looming over him. And, you know, a fear not 
of just not completing his life's work, but of death being possibly the thing that would cut it short. Um, and, you know, we talked a lot about it already, but if you know anything about Tolkien's Legendarium, you know that um, these years writing Lord of the Rings, it wasn't just writing, like, a story to entertain people. You know, he spent a, a lot of time, he wrote languages, he drew maps of the places that he talked about. People, he had histories that aren't in the, the Lord of the Rings trilogy that you have to read other appendixes, you know, appendices and things like that to understand, you know, this was a, a world he was trying to develop. In fact, he was trying to make a, uh, his own ancient feeling English mythology to, to rival Norse mythology or, you know, you know, Greek mythology. That's what, that was his longing to do something like that. And so that, that comes out in Lord of the Rings and, and, and beyond. Um, this effort to make complex characters with real languages and, you know, histories was his attempt to avoid that simple allegory he disliked so much. And I think we'd all say he was very successful at that. Um, you know, we could just stop and think. Think of the mental energy and, and uh, effort that would go into developing a world like that. You know, uh, writing a language, like literal actual languages with actual their own grammar. Um, it's If you've ever tried to learn a different language, you understand. Imagine trying to create one. Um, and so he was, he was obviously a genius. I mean, the closest thing that we have to what he did, um, I was just talking to uh, Scott Pinot, who was here. He, he said um, he was relating the story Dune to uh, something that maybe approaches a little bit of, the, of what... Um, Tolkien did, but you know, in popular culture, you can think of the Marvel Cinematic Universe or Star Wars, and those franchises they have whole teams of people just dedicated to continuity for one thing between the different characters and the different stories and movies that they put out. Um, and you know, if you actually watch them, they're not always successful at that. They have teams of people doing this; they're not always successful at that. And they they create, in my opinion, sometimes cheap plot devices to patch those holes. Right? I mean, we're getting into this multiverse, you know, everything's going that way. And it's almost like once everything, once there's a multiverse, anything is possible. You know, it's, it's like, where's even a story there? So Tolkien was able to make a cohesive world and story by himself, you know? So it, he was, I mean, that's a, a, a level of genius and almost like a pathology, you know, that, that there's something wrong there almost, you know? So, um, the, uh, you know, when you put it in that context, you can understand why, you know, we're going to say he, he started to despair that he would never complete this, right? And we can understand that. So right about halfway through those 17 years, as Tolkien was struggling with the doubts of his own abilities, as um, artists often do, he wrote this short story, Leaf by Niggle. There was a tree near uh, Tolkien's house that had been cut down and kind of mangled by a neighbor, and he related that tree to his own internal mythological tree, so to speak, and and he that brought him fear. And as he thought of that, he woke up one morning with this little story pretty much fresh on his mind, and he wrote it in one day. Um, he says this about it. That story was the only thing I have ever done which cost me absolutely no pains at all. Usually I compose with only great difficulty and endless rewriting. I woke up one day with that odd thing virtually complete in my head. It took only a few hours to get it down and then copy out. And, you know, one of the reasons I would say it came so easily because it was so deeply personal. It is, it is about him and his own struggles. Um, it was an autobiography of sorts. And uh, this is the quote where he, he, um, he, he kind of admits that it is an allegory about himself. He said, I should say that, this is, in, this is much later in 1957, 
in a letter, I should say that in addition to my tree love, it was originally called the tree, it arose from my own preoccupation with the Lord of the Rings. The knowledge that it would be finished, <clears throat> it, it wouldn't be finished in great detail or not at all. And the fear, near certainty, that it, wouldn't, that it would be not at all. The war had arisen to darken all horizons, but no such analysis or a complete explanation even of a short story. So um, that's kind of the context of his writing this. Um, and let me, again, spoiler alert, ruin the story for you. Um, so the story is about a painter named Niggle and his painting. Um, he's not re a successful painter in his life, um, but overall he has this vision for a painting that he's eager to complete. He's attempting to paint a very large tree in great detail, and as he paints, his vision for this tree and this painting grow, and so he starts expanding the canvas and tacking parts on, and it keeps getting bigger and bigger, and he eventually has to have a ladder to be able to reach um, the full um, extent of, of the, can the canvas. Um, the problem is he can never really get to painting the whole Instead, he focuses on painting individual leaves. He's very good at painting leaves. He's not always good at giving attention to uh, the background or the, the other parts of the painting. And um, he did have a knack for painting leaves. One writer notes that uh, the Oxford English Dictionary defines niggle as to work in a fiddling or ineffective way, to spend time unnecessarily on petty details. Um, this is, I think, clearly a reference to himself, Tolkien's uh, you know, own tendencies, and uh, you know, he definitely liked to niggle. Um, Niggle's desire for the completion of this grand painting of a tree represents you know, Tolkien's mythology tree with all its various parts and intertwined branches and leaves. Niggle would prefer to do nothing else but work on his painting, but he keeps getting interrupted by duties and mundane chores in life. This is personified in his neighbor parish, Parrish is a gardener, and he can't really understand why Nagel is so preoccupied with his painting. He sees it as a waste of time. He's uh, uh, that utilitarian person that was talked about in, in I think, uh, Glenn's talk. He barely even looked at his painting when he came to visit Nagel. The surrounding world and, and uh, community that Nagel lives in uh, agrees and doesn't seem to find any value in his painting. We find uh, the opinion of one, uh, I guess it's the inspector that comes to his house, to be totally, uh, again, utilitarian and atomistic. Uh, the main inspector recalls asking Niggle why he liked painting leaves and flowers. And this is what he says about that. He, this is Niggle's response he's recalling. He said he thought they were pretty. What? Digestive and genital organs of plants? I said to him, and he had nothing to answer. Silly footler. So if you can see, that, that's, you know, what's, what's pretty about the, the digestive and general organs of plants? That's, that's how he's uh, characterizing leaves and flowers. Um, but that goes back to, you know, when we break everything down, when we dissect it to understand it, you have nothing left, right? Um, so, um, you know, it, beyond that, at one point it suggested that he should take apart his painting and fix his neighbor's roof with the canvas and use it for more useful things than just creating beauty. Um, and, you know, this is, this is a general commentary, Tolkien's general commentary on, on the wastefulness of beauty, right? Um, you can think of the story in the Gospels of um, you know, Judas saying, you know, we don't put that perfume on Jesus' feet, right? We need to, this is expensive stuff. We should sell this and, and give it to the poor, right? 
And, um, you know, Jesus says, no, this is appropriate that, that you do this. So, um, and, you know, we do see in the world around us, God is, in a sense, wasteful with his beauty um, that we, we often don't appreciate as we ought. Um, I guess these days, you know, the word parish may sound familiar, but we don't typically use the word parish anywhere to talk about a church. But um, a parish used to be an area in a town or city that was kind of sectioned off. That was, uh, and this, it was sectioned off based on the church being at the center. And if you're in this parish, that is your church that you go to. Um, you know, you see this in, um, you know, towns in England and things like that, and even early America that were centered around the church at the center. And their parish was the town, basically. That, that was their parish church. Um, this is why, you know, sometimes people refer to churchgoers as parishioners. This is the people that went to this, their parish church. Um, Tolkien's naming of parish is uh, a reference to the idea of a local church or community and the burden that that brings uh, in living with others and caring for others. Ultimately, Niggle is trying to avoid a long journey. He's supposed to go on, and uh, he desperately wants to finish his painting before the inspector comes to take him on this journey. Um, it's pretty clear that the, the journey is obviously death. You know, people even still sometimes talk about it that way. Uh, and eventually his time comes and the driver arrives to take him on this journey and he protests, my painting isn't finished yet, my painting isn't finished. And that's, the, that's the, his last concern before he dies, so to speak. And he ha he, despite the fact that his painting isn't finished, he has to go. Um, we get a, a picture of, of the journey and this is kind of the most uh, like odd part of the story because the, the journey is, it's, you can't tell exactly how long it is, but you feel like it's a very long time. They call it a... a um, he goes to a workhouse, but then they say he's in a hospital, but it's more like a jail. So um, it, it's all this imagery is put in there. And, um, you know, in this we see, so he's died and it's not, a, he doesn't go to a pleasant place. And uh, in this we see, you know, Tolkien's uh, views of purgatory and things like that come through and, and possibly a, a taste of, uh, you know, Roman Catholic soteriology in there. Uh, in death, we hear two voices sort of debating on letting Niggle reach the destination of the journey. Some say, uh, hear that, and they say, that, you know, this is a debate between God the Father and God the Son on whether to let Niggle reach that destination. But um, I think, I don't, I don't like that interpretation. I think Tolkien's theology proper is probably too good to allow that reading. It's more, I would say, a picture of justice and mercy speaking together, where the conclusion is that... Um, Justice is swayed by mercy to allow Niggle to his destination. And, you know, I won't dissect Tolkien's views of purgatory and the merit or not of that, but, um, uh, you know, as a Protestant, I would disagree, but I would say that there is some application that we can take from that um, in the need for actual righteousness before, you know, and we need to bear fruit before we can reach our destination. We, we just... You know, I, as we would situate it in a different place in this life here and now, that we need to be um, being transformed into the image, and we'll get to the, the image later, but um, before we actually reach that destination. Once Niggle makes the journey and uh, he is allowed past this purgatory stage and is allowed to his destination, um, this is where he begins to see familiar things. He sees his bike and he sees the tree, the, uh, a tree. And, you know, as he looks closer, he realizes the tree is the tree that he envisioned and was trying to paint. Only it was actually more complete than he 
could ever make it in the form of a painting. I mean, for one thing, it was three-dimensional. He could interact with it and, and walk up to it. But even the glory, that they, the way it's described, is more than he, he even imagined. So the painting, if he ever did complete it, would have been just a copy of the, re, the real tree, the reality of this tree that he was now experiencing. He lives in the new world, uh, and as he lives there, it gets more expansive. It doesn't just stop at the tree. It goes beyond the tree to the background that he envisioned and maybe had a glimpse of, but didn't develop, never painted, maybe thought of uh, every now and then, but it was more than he thought. And then he goes into this country, and it's, it's a whole world that was in his mind, just in glimpses, in, in pieces, that in this destination after the journey, um, he's able to experience. So it's something that is more full and more real than he could ever imagine. He goes on in the world, and, and the th interesting thing about the world that he's in is it's more complete than he ever imagined and could have ever done, but it still needs work. There's still things to be done there. He still has to cultivate it. And while he's doing this, um, he, he wishes for his neighbor parish. There was a little, there's a little bit of, um, you know, part of the reasons why, reason why he had to go on this long journey is because he actually um, had to help his neighbor parish and it was raining out and, um, you know, his, his parish's wife was sick. He had to go on this trip to, to go get the doctor and it was raining. And so he got sick from helping his neighbor. And part of the thing is, is um, his death is, you know, if, if you want to be uh, bitter about it, you know, if, if he's reflecting on his life in the afterlife, oh, this is parish's fault, right? But you see here, and, and there, there is some, um, you know, uh, there is a little bit of friction and conflict between those two. And even Niggle sees his all the help that he has to give to his neighbor and the people around him as just taking him away from what he really wants to do, right? So th this is the interesting turn here is that he wants Parrish to be there. And um, <laughs> Parrish, uh, in this life, uh, he also was on the journey, presumably somewhere in purgatory, and Niggles wishing him there brings him into his world, and they, they live in this world and cultivate it together. And uh, Parrish helps Niggle bring this vision to more full life and to, to more, uh, more real than it already was. So they both get the satisfaction of their life's longing, and it's far beyond what either of them could have imagined. Um, you see a little bit, we could, we could analyze these characters pretty deeply, but, you know, Parrish maybe is the, is the law side of thing, the order. And, you know, Niggle, um, you know, if you're familiar with um, Jordan Peterson's work, he always makes this contrast of chaos and order. And I see that in these two people, and, and Jordan Peterson talks about um, artists are the ones on the edge of um, chaos, pushing order into past the boundaries. You know, so it's a, it, it kind of relates to some of the questions there of this, you know, uh, order and chaos. Um, I mean, these days I think a lot of artists see themselves as existing in the chaos, but uh, I think truly when we understand the good, the true, and the beautiful, the purpose of art should be to push back the chaos and bring order to the world. But then you have people that are in the world that are maintaining the order, that that's what their, their, their role is and their purpose is to do. Um, so this is, uh, we see here a, a vision of, you know, Tolkien's vision of the afterlife, and it's a beautiful picture of what Tolkien um, you know, saw as the ultimate reality that he was striving for in his own life. 
and uh, where he thought that Christians, you know, ultimately we could relate this to Christian theology, obviously, where um, we are going to go. I think that we could relate this to sometimes we have a hard time envisioning what heaven will be like, right? I remember um, talking with somebody that was going through suffering, and I'm trying to comfort them with the comforts of heaven, and they're saying, I, I know, thank you, but I don't see it. I don't know what it's like. And I feel like part of the, the power of the story is that you see that it is something different than the things that we long for and that we see and can touch here, but it's not entirely different. It's um, something beyond, but, but uh, we get glimpses and pieces of it here. Um, and we'll, we'll, I'll come back to that in a minute. But um, So after we see this vision of heaven, so to speak, and the afterlife and this reality, um, we, uh, it comes back to earth. The last part of the story is two characters speaking. One of them actually lives in Niggle's house, and they're talking and assessing Niggle's life, life's work from an earthly perspective. And um, the first character, he's actually the guy I quoted before, is saying, you know, this is he, it was a waste of time. You know, he should have used this stuff. He should have used his time to do much more useful things. And while the other character, you know, he's not very forceful, but he mildly pushes back and says, you know, he did make some beautiful pictures, though, you know. And in fact, that character finds a piece of the canvas. It was one leaf that was left, one of those detailed leaves that he was able to uh, uh, somewhat finish. And he uh, saw the beauty and appreciated it, and he took that and hung it in the, the town museum. And that little leaf was titled Leaf by Niggle. And it stood there for many years and, you know, didn't get many viewers, but occasionally people would, would come by and view it. And um, eventually the museum burns down, and along with uh, Niggle's life work. And from an earthly perspective, He's forgotten. Him and his, his life work are forgotten, right? But um, we already got a picture of behind the scenes of the, the real reality of where um, uh, Niggle was. So there are a lot of themes within this story. Let me see what time I got here and what time I got to be done. Um, so yeah, there are a lot of themes within the story, but uh, I'll just um, touch on two of them. And the first is this idea of a deep longing and heartache for something more. Clearly, Tolkien and his character Niggle were reaching for something larger than themselves in their work. They had a vision for something that they strove for, but they thought would likely never be fully accomplished. It's a, it's a hope mixed with a little grief or um, anxiety even. Um, I think this story is very clear and like uh, an often a uh, comfort to artists, but I think this applies to anybody in work that they want to do that's meaningful, right? Um, anybody that wants to make their mark on this world that feels like you know, I want to be an agent for change and goodness and truth and beauty. Um, C.S. Lewis talked about this longing, and he um, couldn't find an English word that fully captured what he was trying to describe. So he used a German word, uh, which is Seinsucht, I think is how it's, how it's pronounced. S-E-H-N-S-U-C-H-T, Seinsucht. And this is a word where its meaning encapsulates that idea of longing, and hope, but also captures a striving for an ideal, a sense of, mixed with a sense of incompleteness. Um, George MacDonald often captured this idea in his writing. My, uh, my favorite George MacDonald story, it's another short story that's uh, easy to read in probably about an hour, is The Golden Key. It's all about this. It's about a boy finding a key, spending his life searching a fairyland to find the lock that the key opens. And the boy says this in the beginning, where was the lock to which the key belonged? It must be somewhere, for how can anybody be so silly as to make a key for which there was no lock? And uh, that is Zeinzuck, 
the, the, this feeling that we have a key in our hearts and that we have to find the lock it goes to to open up ultimate reality. Uh, Lewis again speaks of it in this way in The Weight of Glory. He says, in speaking of, of this desire for our far, far off country, and we get that imagery of the back country that, that Nigel was painting, which we find in ourselves even now, I feel a certain shyness. I'm almost committing an indecency. I'm trying to rip open the inconsolable secret in each one of you, the secret which hurts so much that you take your revenge on it by calling it names like nostalgia and romanticism and adolescence. The secret also which pierces with such sweetness that when in very intimate conversation the mention of it becomes imminent, we grow awkward and affect to laugh at ourselves. The secret we cannot hide and cannot tell, though we desire to do both. We cannot tell it because it is a desire for something that has never actually appeared in our experience. We cannot hide it because our experience is constantly suggesting it, and we betray ourselves like lovers at the mention of a name. Our commonest expedient is to call it beauty and behave as if that had settled the matter. And he goes on to say more. I'll, I'll skip ahead a little bit. He says, the books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them, it only came through them. And what came, came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if we are mistaken, but if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never visited. So again, that picture of the far off country we get there, it, it alludes to, it is, uh, you know, alluded to in Leaf by Niggle in the painting. Um, and um, Tolkien described the same type of thing this way. Uh, he said, we all long for Eden, we are, and we are constantly glimpsing it. Our whole nature at its best and least corrupted, its gentlest and most humane, is still soaked with a sense of exile. If you come to think of it, your very just horror at the stupid murder of the hawk and your obstinate memory of this home of yours in an idyllic hour, when often there is an illusion of the stay of time and decay and a sense of gentle peace, are derived from Eden. Tolkien has a little scene in The Hobbit illustrating this concept as well. Right before Bilbo, Bilbo begins his adventure, uh, it says, he dreamed of his own house and want, wandered in his sleep into all his different rooms looking for something that he could not find nor remember what it looked like. In Mere Christianity, Lewis uses this concept as a central part of his apologetic. He says, if I find in myself desires for which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. And I would argue um, biblically that this is in large part what the book of Ecclesiastes is about. It's about satiating this longing and exasperating all earthly options until we are left with the conclusion that it can't be found in this life. So this longing, this uh, Zein Zucht, is something we can all relate to. I think so. In some sense, it's, it's, it's what it means to be human, right? And, uh, you know, this is often especially so for artists. This was Niggle's driving force behind his completion of his painting. And clearly, as hopefully has been evidenced by this conference, Tolkien had more that he was striving for in his Middle Earth mythology than simply, you know, trying to amuse us. Uh, we, we want our life to mean something more, and we're grasping for that. 
And we can simplistically look at the context, you know, of Tolkien writing the story and, and, you know, him at that time worrying about never completing his painting. And, uh, you know, we could, we could look at that and think, you know, he was wrong, right? He was successful. He, he made money. He, uh, we're talking about his stories now. Um, they made motion pictures after it. So, you know, his fears relieved. The longing satiated. You know, he was wrong about that. But um, if you think that, you, you would misunderstand the point being made about Zion Zuck. The, the longing never stops until you reach the back country or until you find the lock for the key. But even then, to borrow a phrase from Lewis's last battle, it's still further up and further in. Like we see Niggle gets to the completion of his painting in reality, and it, they're still further up and further in. And uh, this is the human condition, and, and many try to ignore the longing and numb it, but um, what I'm suggesting is that we lean, lean into it and embrace it. Uh, let it lead you to that lifelong pursuit of making that great painting. And even when true and real responsibilities in our parish interrupts our life, we see that as we get a vision here in this story, that that's part of the pursuit. It's not something that takes us away from the, the big picture. It's part of the pursuit. So the second and final thing I want to look at quickly um, is, uh, and, and again, a couple of people touched on this, is Tolkien's view of sub-creation here and um, you know, how that relates to our purpose in the world. So before we, we already talked about the end, but sometimes before you talk about the end, it's helpful to go to the beginning. Um, and the beginning was the maker. You know, we talk about God as creator, but he was a maker. He was an artist, so to speak. And before any physical thing existed, there was a creative being, loving, eternal, personal, self-existent spirit, a perfectly happy triune God. This God, the maker, created all things out of nothing, uh, not out of, out of any lack or need in himself, but out of an overflow of his being. The initial act of creativity is the only truly pure act of creativity. Every other creative act is derivative. This is what Tolkien meant by sub-creation. And as we explore this idea and start to look around, we realize that at best, we are only imitators of the maker. We can never make something totally new. Our creative acts are a reforming of the substance that exists. So artists, craftsmen, sub-creators, anybody working in the world to serve their neighbor are working after, after the pattern set. And this is a humbling truth for the artist, especially I think for the, for the modern artist that likes to think of themselves as creating their own world apart from anybody else. And um, you know, that's what art these days is often seen as, is freeing oneself from the constraints of reality. You know, rules are the antithesis to art in the modern mind, and even Niggle struggled with that a little bit. But real freedom begins with knowing your limitations and working within those bounds. Um, and you know, this is the difference between the craftsman and the modern artist. So I said I do woodworking as well, and so that's kind of I have experience with this. You know, a craftsman or woodworker knows what it means to cut with the grain or cut against the grain. So while manipulating material requires a sort of mastery, it also requires a submission to reality. Um, I think pre-modern modern artists knew this. Uh, much better than we do. So while humbling, it's also dignifying. You know, if you, if you know the story of creation in the Bible, you know that humans are the pinnacle of all that God had made. The only being created in his image and set up to be the caretaker and ruler of the world he created. And, uh, you know, created, again, to reflect that act of creation. 
these are the first things that knowing the beginning answers for us. Uh, you know, we're put in our place simultaneously as humble subjects in the maker's world and put in place as rulers within it, you know, and, uh, I would, you know, many creatives gravitate toward this idea of subcreation for obvious, obvious reasons, but it applies to all work and vocations, as I said. There's a way to read the story, again, as contrasting Niggle and Parrish, but we see here actually at the end the, the unity of both of them. So we need each other. We need to be in community. You know, um, I often say, you know, I have five children, so that, that takes a lot of time. I'm, I'm married. Um, you know, I'm trying to... Uh, start a business and do all these things. And so I don't have time to create. I would love to just be like Niggle and, you know, create. Um, but, you know, so for a while, you know, you see those things as a distraction, but they, at the end of my life, they are the artwork. You know, if, if I fail there, you know, that is um, the worst thing I could do as opposed to never having an art show somewhere or whatever, being recognized in a museum. So it's easy to contrast these two people, these two characters, but in the end they unite. With that understanding of subcreation in place, we get a beautiful glimpse um, about Niggle that under his creator, he does get to create his own world where the reality of it is better than he could even imagine. So when he first arrives in this realized painting, he has no, it has no name. Um, but by the end of the book, after Niggle and Parrish get to finish it and Niggle goes further, um, he actually goes beyond his own world. Uh, the, the, the shepherd takes him further, further up and further in. Um, he finds out the name. It's Niggles Parish. That's the name of the country. Um, so this is an encouragement to create. If you're an artist or craftsman or maybe an entrepreneur or a leader with a vision, but it's also a call to do work in our duties in the world, in service and self-sacrifice to others. We need to see it in light, all of it, in light of eternity and ultimate reality. Um, you know, we have different gifts and different visions, and, and you know, part of being in this world is working together. Um, and I would argue that the church is a big part of that as well in, in terms of uh, local community. And um, so this is the last thing that, that I'll touch on. Um, we're running out of time here. Um, the, the fact that, you know, this story points us to what is really real. There's an interesting exchange between Niggle and Parrish in the afterlife together, and this is before we know the name of the place that I just mentioned. Um, and so Niggle's being led by the shepherd, and it's where Parrish, Parrish actually decides to stay back because he's waiting for his wife to, to continue on in this world and to, you know, then eventually, you know, they will go on further up and further in. But Parrish stays back, and he says, when she gets here, what, what, where is she going? I don't know the name of this place either. You know, nobody ever told me. And that's when he finds out this is Niggle's painting. He was living there for who knows how long, you know, and he then finds out this was Niggle's painting. And he's surprised, and he says, Niggle, I, I, you never told me this. You, I didn't know during our life that this was what you were doing. And Niggle says, you didn't care to ask. You didn't even want to look at it when you came over, you know? So, like, that, it's that moment of repentance even for Parrish to say, like, I should have cared. I should have known, you know? And so um, you have that beautiful thing of both of them coming together um, in, in what could be called, you know, uh, repentance. Um, so, you know, what we have pictured in this story is something greater than Plato's, Plato's world of ideals. Um, we have a picture of a human participation in reality where we get to participate in the creation of it. That's the, that's the, the, the kind of this thing that uh, it's hard to even express and develop where I'm saying that we only sub-create, and I think Tolkien is saying we're sub-creators under the creation, but when you see the vision that he paints of this world, it's almost like there is something new. There, there is something that Niggle was able to create. You know, of course, it was, it is 
he had no raw material, but there is something that we have real agency in this world. And um, the, the full reality of that could only be seen in light of um, understanding the Christian gospel of, of you know, where we are going in, in eternity. Um, so this is, I think this helps paint the, that picture of heaven to people that are suffering, that I struggled to do at that time, um, where we can say it is, there is something that, um, that thing that you're longing for now that you're reaching for, it is real. It is more real than what you have now and that, that what you can even imagine. Um, so let me, I'll just finish with this. There's two possible ends of each person, right? We, we see one in Niggle. Um, he shows us one destination, but there's another option. Lewis talks about this other potentiality, uh, again, in the weight of glory. He says this, it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be tempted, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else, or else a horror and a corruption such as if you now meet uh, such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. So he's, he's showing there's two sides of this. We get to see Niggle being glorified from glory to glory. And, it, and, it, and we get this idea that it's never going to end. But what Lewis is pointing out, and we, we see this in Tolkien um, as well, that there's a, the other end of the spectrum as well, in eternity becoming less real, less human, less yourself, more monstrous. And uh, I think you know, the obvious <coughs> illustration of this is Gollum, right? Um, Gollum was a hobbit. Uh, Gollum was a hobbit that becomes basically a monster, right? And um, he becomes less himself. He's not even recognizable as a hobbit anymore. And this is, you know, this is a picture of heaven and hell that we're getting here uh, through Tolkien and Lewis. Um, the goal uh, is to be more human than you are now, to be more yourself than you know you're even able to be. Um, that's what that longing is for. That is what it means to be Christ-like, to becoming. He is the, the archetype. He is the ideal. He is the one we're striving to be like. Um, so um, I'll end it there. But uh, I think the encouragement is just to see our lives, no matter what we do, artists or not, in light of eternity and these two opposite poles. And, um, you know, knowing the answer of how to go in, in the right direction and search for the good and, and ultimate reality is the most important thing in life. So uh, we got, a, I guess, a couple minutes here to uh, ask questions. But uh, yeah, does anybody have any questions? Tom. Yeah, I just, just the comments, a comment. Um, mm -hmm. Three things came to mind. One was um, uh, the, the Bible passage that says, Right now, we we see in part, mm -hmm. we shall see then we shall see fully in, in full. Yep. Okay. Yep. Uh, that's the thing. The other was Jesus walking along with um, with um, Andrew and and um, uh, John, mm -hmm. um, and they were right there with the risen Christ, <laughs> but. They didn't realize it until he told them, but they were walking with 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 perfection. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that comes to mind is the picture of in Revelation of what heaven will, will look like, which is beyond anything that we can really understand. What does clear gold look like? Mm. 
what does clear streets of pure gold, gold look like and all the other uh, pictures of, of, of minerals and things like that, rubies, I mean, all this stuff, uh, you know, yet, so, so those are goals of things that, those kind of feel like they, they kind of fall in line with some of the oh, things yeah. that, that, that you're talking about. 100%, yeah, yeah, I, I love that. Um, you know, that, that quote from Tolkien talks about the, the Eden, that's what we're longing for. And I would I would actually go a little further in terms of bringing in Revelation. I think that the picture we get in Revelation is some sort of a return to Eden, right? That's what we're going for. But I think it's 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 better, right? It's not just a garden; it's a garden city. And and you know, some people say, "Oh, look at we're uh, we want to go back to innocence. We want to be naked and, and not you know." But in Revelation, they're clothed, and we see you know, clothing is a is a form of glory, right? They're clothed in white. They they're they're they've reached their maturity. So I think you know. It's almost like Eden, while that is the paradise, in a sense, that, that was ruined, the paradise lost, it was humanity in its infancy. Revelation, we get this picture that, that we're not just going back to innocence. We're, not, we're, we're going beyond. We're, we're becoming even, you know, we're basically reaching the goal, I think, that um, Adam and Eve ought to have, you know, had they passed the test, if you could speak uh, hypothetically like that. But, you know, it's beyond even what that, that you know, where we came from. Something else? Thinking about a tree that was beyond the workhouse that actually existed. Mm. Was it there because Nagel's work in his life was constructing it, or was he constructing it because it was there? Mm. Or am I making a false dichotomy? It's a different relationship. Yeah, well, that, I mean, that's kind of the question of maybe. Uh, platonic ideals and things. I don't know if that's where you're going with it, but, you know, yeah, I guess that's a question of what am I saying about this reality? Is he just creating after a pattern? And I think it's it could be both, maybe, but, you know, you do, because when he is there in this uh, reality that he, in one sense, created, there is, they say, that there is this thing there that he never actually even consciously thought of, but that was maybe a glimmer in his mind somewhere. So um, you get this sense of kind of both, that like it's there because he created this world, but there's also a reality which he's striving for. And I think that's the type of thing, when you put it in those terms, you realize it is an eternal striving. Um, you know, in one sense, when we reach heaven, our longings will be satisfied, but, um, it, it, you know, maybe uh, taking away all the negative aspects that we associate with longing, but, you know, we don't... Uh, it's hard for us to imagine going on forever and increasingly bettering ourselves and bettering others around us and knowing God more and seeing more of, you know, but if you think of who God is in his uh, being and what it means to be eternal, you know, he, it has to be forever, right? So I think it's maybe, a, I don't know if that answers it, and I'm not maybe the, the one to answer that in depth, but um, I would think of it as a, a both and. And to think about it more, is it his work on the canvas that constructs the real tree? Mm -hmm. Or is it the distractions that mm. he gives himself to? Yeah. I wonder which work is contributing to the real tree. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I also found it very profound. I never before what you said about the key is in the heart mm. to, to what lock. Meaning yeah. there is work to do in our second rising. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, um, we don't go to heaven to do nothing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You go to heaven to continue the real work for which 
you are made and echoing. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's something that we, we often look at the fall in the Bible and think, you know, okay, well, work is part of the fall, right? And it's not. You know, work was there before the fall. It just became difficult after the fall. It became, you know, thorns and thistles. And so work is part of God's good creation that he called very good, you know. Um, and this, this goes, part of that goes into what I said about Revelation. You know, we get the picture of that confirmed there, basically, that there is um, more to be done, you know, that this is, um, that we will be able to, uh, you know, part of that, this whole question in our society of like, who am I? What is, what am I here for? What, you know, am I a, a male or female? You know, it's a question about vocation and, and a question about, um, and by vocation, I don't just mean job, but like, what's my purpose? Like, what, a, um, I, I feel like I have agency in this world, but I don't know what exactly uh, I should be doing with myself. And so like, when you search within, you can't find that. And, uh, you know, I think that that was part of Niggle's lesson is that, you know, to answer that part of your question is like, I think it all contributed to the, the tree, you know, the whole, uh, that's the picture of actually part of what gets him to his destination when Mercy's talking. Um, there's a little bit, you can pick up hints of maybe uh, merit, you know, Roman Catholic merit and things like that of like, okay, we'll let him in because he did enough. Um, and I, I don't want to, you know, it is an allegory. I don't want to go too far with what Tolkien meant by that. But, um, you know, there is a sense in which um, our good works and love towards other people, I mean, it's, this, it's the second commandment, you know what I mean? So um, that is... All of my, if I never do another piece of art and and or and love my neighbors, I will have succeeded in my goal. You know what I mean. But if I do the opposite, if I complete artwork and don't love my neighbors, I've failed. I won't reach the destination. You won't get to the tree. You know. So that tree doesn't exist without um, uh, loving your neighbor as yourself. I guess I have like a two-pronged question. Like it feels like it goes in two different directions. But the first part of my question is. Like, how do we, as Christians, properly foster that longing without getting fatalistic about it? Like, well, you know, I might not even be around to see that, like, later consummation, which we know it's like there's going to be a resurrection, and we know that Christ is coming back. But in our lives right now, how, how, do, we, how do we make that hit the ground mm. without being weird? an extremist about that longing? Um, I'll let you know when I figure out. <laughs> but when I, I read the Bible or read Leaf by Nagel. So. <laughs> no. The second part of my question is how can we help other Christians who kind of don't really give two hoots about beauty mm. and things like that like I've I'm kind of getting tired of conversations with other Christians who don't care about doing things well. Mm -hmm. But they, but there seems to be a double standard there. There seems to be, well, we have to do everything unto the Lord, but that just means spiritually speaking. We don't actually have to make good music or good movies or good art. We don't have to beautify the world around us. Mm -hmm. But why is everybody else taking all the all the good stuff away from us? How how do we have those conversations with other Christians hmm. who kind of don't care about beauty? Yeah, I mean, that that's a tough one because it, you could come at it from a bunch of different angles. I like I remember a conversation with a friend. We were sitting talking about some things like that, about art and stuff, and he just looked. We were at a place, and he's a very different. He's more in the parish realm. I'll put it that way. Um, and he just looks at a painting at the place we were at on the wall, and he says, "It's like that. What's that for?" And like I, I, I honestly like the way I 
like I couldn't really answer him because you know, it's a foreign way of thinking, right? But I think, um, you know, I guess for other Christians, um, some of the stuff that was said here about like understanding where this idea of utility comes from is helpful, I think, you know, that it's not really, God isn't like that. You know, he doesn't only do things that are useful in that sense, um, that, that we mean that. I mean, beauty is useful, you know, but that's hard to define what use it has always, right? Um, so I think um, that's probably my way into it with people that are like that person that is completely like, what is that even for? I don't get it. Like, I don't get it at all. So it, there is that friction there of kind of sometimes it's just two different personalities or um, two different callings in life. But I do think that it's worth the effort to um, try to um, have those people understand uh, the need for beauty. But I also think maybe another way in is to, you know, value their view of things to start there. You know, um, I think I mentioned how Jordan Peterson frames it. That that's helpful for me a little bit to actually appreciate the people that want order. There is there's a reason why these artists and entrepreneurs and people that are on the edges of the chaos. They're bring their goal is to bring order to more of the world, right? And so I think that that you know to see those things in unity for myself has helped me just have those conversations. I don't know how. To, there's not like a slam dunk answer. You know what I mean? Way to do it, but. Yes. And like Dr. Kennedy said this morning, maybe you don't think so. Maybe they're touched by a Thomas Kincaid painting. Mm -hmm. And you say, wow. Like, like you, you don't have to appreciate the painting. You can appreciate their appreciation mm -hmm. because that's beautiful. And ask them, like, what is it about that? Yeah. That just draws you. Or like, and then maybe they would realize what it is that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And it might expand to other things then because then you're on the same page mm -hmm. like when they say what's that for and you try to answer them you're not on the same page mm -hmm. it's really hard to get on the same page yeah first of all I'm waiting for you to tie this in with Achilles and his character right. <laughs> yeah this is uh, that's so a whole thing. Um, <laughs> so I think it's also interesting in um, you're explaining this that, that what you like to, the Tolkien's actually like Nagel because all this and his painting, the story itself is like that. But what it's doing, like I feel like what it has done inside me and mm. my understanding of that, that his, you know, and, and the grace of God and, and just the, the glory of God in using these things. He was in a time of despair or whatever. Mm. And it's not even just artists, but, you know, moms just doing that, doing that thing they do and the janitor doing the thing he does that, how significant those those works are unseen by others or un, you know, un, not even done with great spirit or, or hope or whatever. But mm -hmm. just kind of those thoughts just occurred to me that it's like how great God is and how it's amazing. Yeah, amen. Um, I think, um, you know, I'm a, as a hospice chaplain, I can tell you that as, as people come to the end of their life, one of the things they really struggle with is that they didn't do it. Mm. And they, they, and so we do what we call, we, at the bedside, we do what we call a, a life review. And um, we say, well, tell me about, tell me your story. 
So there's a lot to be said about the whole thing about, tell me about the story of your life. And they said, well, I, was, I did this, and I did that. And I said, well, what did you do here in the war? Well, I was, um, I, I, was uh, I did this, and I did that. And we go through, we go through these different stages. And then at the end, I say, well, it sounds to me like your life was really fulfilled. Mm. And we go, well, they didn't do anything great. I said, well, I think if you ask the people that you touch all along, if they could come back and sit at your bedside, they would say that you did some great things. Mm. And I think that we, we come, you know, we go through life and we say, well, I haven't done anything terrific. But a lot of times, the, the terrific stuff isn't the mundane things. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's in the you know it's in the fact that you know a man spends a man spends his whole life. I remember talking to a guy who was a barber, and 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 I said, well, he said I didn't do anything great. I said, he said what you do? I said what did you do? How was your family? He says I have six girls, and he said I put them all through college as a, as a barber. <laughs> I said that's incredible. I said, I said that is that is a great thing just to do that, and we you know we're because, and we're so fascinated by these, these things that, that these great things that people do, but 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 really it's in the mundane things, the, the, the things everyday life. You know, someone asked Martin Luther one time if, if if you knew that the world was coming to an end today, what would you be doing? Mm-hmm. Martin Luther happened to be in his garden, and the story goes he would say, "What I'm doing now." Mm-hmm. In other words, in other words, I am so content in my relationship with God, in the relationship in my life, and what I do, that I wouldn't change a thing. And as Christians, we have to look at our lives, and I think we have to say, what are the things that God really wants me to do? To be a good husband, to be a good wife, to be, to, to be in His Word, to be a prayerful person, to help in our community. These are, these are not, you know, these are not mundane, these are mundane things made to some people, but they're not mundane things hmm. to God. Yeah, Amen. Yeah, I think I think this story. A lot of times, people can read it. We actually have to. Oh, we'll close in a minute, but um, they read it as like almost a new priesthood. Oh well, this is a glorification of artists. Um, you could you could kind of read it that way and get some hints of that. But it's you know I, that's not the case. You know, uh, like we said, he doesn't. The tree doesn't exist without his service and good works to other people and his love for his neighbor. You know, and I think that you know that's what Tolkien is trying to bring out that um, it is in the mundane. Those were the things that. Um, matter, you know. So, amen to that. Last one. I think we have to go back to our basic catechism. What is the end of man? Hmm. It is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. God is glorified, piggybacking on what He said. When we do everything unto the Lord hmm. and do it well, yeah, there God is glorified. Hmm. You know. Amen.